Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome on to Dunk Don. Again, I want to thank everyone who signed up with that dunkdon.supportingcast.fm link the response continues to be just incredible we really appreciate all of you supporting us uh, in a move that we kind of had to do based uh, on some of the trends in the industry so once again there's a link to that in the show notes you can check that out the pre-sale is going to be going on until we actually launch on september 8th and you can get that founding membership pricing that we will never offer again but that you will get forever if you sign up before september 8th so i mean i think the place to start in the absence of any super close games today is with the nba lottery what happened we did not see a lot of chalk i mean so minnesota jumped from three to one golden state fell from one to two and then we saw chicago and charlotte move up from the seventh and eighth best odds respectively so that leads to a really interesting top four minnesota golden state charlotte chicago and Minnesota to be so this is something I brought up towards the end of the pod we were kind of riffing on the lottery yesterday that I was excited about the possibility of Minnesota getting the number one pick because I think LaBella Ball could end up being a better lead guard than D'Angelo Russell not a guarantee obviously absolutely a chance he busts but now Gerson Rosas and their front office have a real decision to make because you and I both feel LaMelo is number one guy in this class of the people we've seen so far. But yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know that. Uh, I mean, the only one, other one I think will be a candidate for me. I mean, I keep him open mind, obviously, but realistically, probably Denny Odia is the only other guy that I would look at as potentially being the one that we haven't looked at yet. So, uh, and I think our board is different than a lot of people's, uh, to be sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing is that. To both of us, Lamelo's not even a sure thing. We spent 40 minutes on him. Uh, I tweeted out the link to it today, actually, uh, at Nate Duncan NBA. So if you want to hear more about why we think he's the number one prospect in this class, go back and listen to that. And but I mean, he's just got the highest upside easily. He has the highest skill level in terms of just like what wows you. The and certainly a lot of bust potential with his shooting in particular with his defense's weird path but we're not saying he's a guarantee we're just saying he has the highest upside in a draft like this I think you go that way right I think so too and it's also a challenge for Minnesota in particular now you draft best prospect available even if you have a couple of tent poles presumably in in Rosas's eyes and Carl Anthony Towns so we agree on that and D'Angelo Russell where we probably don't and it just so happens that two of the top three players and the top two on our boards are a primary ball handler whether whatever position LaMelo ends up guarding and James Wiseman's the center and I don't think you can really play Wiseman I don't think you'd necessarily want to play Wiseman and Towns together. Again, if you think they're the best players, you go that direction. But also, this it, it's interesting to give Minnesota's pick because Rosas has you know some connections with the with some pragmatic general managers, including Daryl Morey, and they could theoretically trade this pick. I don't exactly know what that trade would look like. Maybe it's a, somebody who's interested in Lamelo who doesn't necessarily want to deal with the Warriors. 
and Minnesota could, I mean, other than those two guys, they have a lot of different directions they could go. But the other kind of element of this for me that's that's compelling is that Anthony Edwards is, you know, an, an intriguing player. And I think theoretically he could slide in like you could see some benefits to him playing next to somebody like Carl Anthony Towns, because if he if he takes too many shots, then you he, 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 think you'll get a lot of that stuff out of his game. But it also creates kind of a weird ecosystem for them. Remember, they gave up a first round pick for Malik Beasley and Juancho Hernan Gomez. They have batch rights on those two going into it. And I don't particularly think that Beasley and Anthony Edwards are a great fit on the perimeter. You can argue that he's lower in the packing order, so you, you go you go after those. But yeah, I mean, let's, starting at the top, I think that's a really challenging, compelling decision for a general manager who really, this is his chance to make the stamp on the franchise for the next five, ten years. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know what Minnesota is going to do. ESPN has them mocked as taking LaMelo Ball. That might just be because they like LaMelo the best as well. A lot of other people don't really dislike LaMelo. Hollinger, Ethan Strauss, for example. Hollinger and I will have a debate on Lamella at some point before the draft, I'm sure. But I really don't know what to make of Gerson Rosas in some ways. He has a more of a scouting background. He did get off of Andrew Wiggins finally, but he also they coveted clearly D'Angelo Russell. I'm not sure whether that's just because Carl Anthony Towns really likes him, but D'Angelo Russell on a max contract and giving up that draft pick to him, they did get off of Wiggins, obviously, which helps. But this to me, if you, now maybe they don't think Lamelo is the best guy. Again, I, I disagree, but I think Lamelo ultimately could be a better fit with Carl Anthony Towns than D'Angelo Russell. And this to me is why you don't invest all these resources and money and draft picks in, you know, the 15th to 20th best point guard in the NBA in D'Angelo Russell because you have all this invested and you're committed to him but are you really going anywhere with that player and now are you also going to pass on potentially the best prospect in this draft because you have D'Angelo Russell is it the case that LaMelo Ball is just not an option for them because it's not that you could say maybe you play those guys together I don't really think that would work that well uh, and to be clear, even if even having D'Angelo Russell, I would take Lamelo Ball, and I wouldn't think twice about it because he's just to me by far the best of these potential prospects. And Edwards is a little bit lower, though he is the better positional fit. I mean, Edwards also has some pretty big Andrew Wiggins vibes. I'm sure people in Minnesota would be a little traumatized. He's not quite the same player. He's got probably more power and physicality than yeah. I'd say he, play, he plays with more force, but there also are questions about him applying that on the defensive end, which were which were true for Wiggins as well. But, was always the- by the way, uh, the interview that they did with them, I mean, it was tough for these guys because they were probably told, hey, you only have, you know, 30 seconds to answer this. So Anthony Edwards got asked what he learned at Georgia. He's like, how to deal with bad games. I had a lot of bad games. I mean, it's true. <laughs> like, the man didn't lie. Uh, but the... The analogy that I was thinking of when I was kind of dancing through this, if, the, if they, if it wasn't straight best player available, because there's a rational, a rational argument, not that we agree with it, that Edwards is the best player. But let's say it was more of a need, or you don't want to ruffle feathers things. What it would remind me a little bit of is the decision by Phoenix a couple of years ago to take Josh Jackson instead of De'Aaron Fox. They're like, oh, we have a point guard. Josh Jackson's interesting, and De'Aaron Fox is now a solid starting point guard with, with a lot of room to 
grow, and Josh Jackson got his fourth-year option declined. And that's more extreme, obviously, than, than you would see, but it's a reminder of that. And then you can move on to the number two team when we, we talked about who would be interested in getting number one. The Warriors were involved because of the potential chaos. And the Warriors' part of this is fascinating for a couple of different reasons. One, we don't know if they're even gonna, if they're going to make the pick for themselves or someone else, but also thinking about how the uncertainty potentially, for now at least, of number one changes the negotiations for the Warriors are number two, because I'm sure there are teams, if they're, let's say they're trying to move this pick for a veteran, there are teams that are significantly more interested in one player than another. And as of right now, they can't be sure that that player is going to be on the board. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if I were the Warriors and LaMelo were gone, I would probably take James Wiseman as of this point. Now I realize he's the center, but I do think his defensive capabilities, I think he has one of the, actually the highest floors in this draft because just guys with his physical capabilities, strength, length, speed, jumping ability, and, you know, at least a decent skill level and touch. Yeah, I know he didn't play that much in college, so he seems risky, but I think it's pretty hard for a guy like that to fail. Um, you know, and I thought Anthony Slater wrote a pretty good piece laying out potentially the case for Wiseman. Uh, but, you know, and I think Avdia maybe could figure there as well if, you know, I haven't looked at him yet. Um, it doesn't seem like he's being talked about it in this range. But yeah, I mean, as I'm scrolling down, I'm just like, man, there are not a lot of guys that I've liked that we looked at so far. We still have to do some more scouting reports, obviously, which we will once uh, we find out a, a little more. Any other, like, just general thoughts here on this draft? Yeah, I, I'm interested in Charlotte and Chicago in this. I mean, one of those teams is probably going to have the, well, one of Charlotte will have the opportunity at one of those kind of top three players that are consistently talked about at the top. There are others that could work their way in. And I'm excited about Charlotte and Chicago there because I thought that both of those teams were looking pretty treadmill of mediocrity-esque, you know, like the, that they were, they could potentially be, you know, like a fringe playoff team if things go well over the next couple of years, but didn't really have the the ceiling because of lack of star talent and, and in Charlotte's case, not really being a free agent destination. And then the other thought that I had was there's a distinct chance that whether it's because Minnesota and Golds, they keep their picks or trade them, that the guy who's available to Charlotte is James Wiseman. And that theoretically takes a suitor, presumably off the board for the centers in this free agent market, most notably Christian Wood. And so the ripple effects of that hmm. are, are are significant. And then Chicago, you know, like if, if let's say it's those three guys are off the board, then Karnaschewicz gets the opportunity to take best prospect available. And I, you know, when I did the offseason preview of them for the athletics, something I talked about was that the importance of evaluating internally and externally and having the fourth pick is a significantly stronger opportunity to kind of assess some of that stuff than it would be if they were at seven. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm, I mean, who knows? Like we could see LaMelo fall to three or four potentially that, that, and Kurnishevis, I think he has a little bit different of approach, at least if he's, it was one of the guys driving that Denver approach compared to the, you know, draft the guy out of the good program who spent four years in college type of approach that the Bulls have had. I mean, obviously Golden State getting two as opposed to falling to five, which is the most likely outcome that if anything, just boosts the potential trade value here. Maybe it's at some point later, or maybe Maybe it's uh, before the draft and Woj actually said before they started that Bob Myers said, you know, they definitely would really consider trading the pick. So that's that was surprising that they said that. Of course, I think part of that the reason you tell Woj that is so that people know that you're open for business. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to trade the pick, and it depends, of course, what options uh, are available and how much they end up liking these guys. There's much, of course, to be determined there. Uh, the other thing that Woj reported today is that the union is telling NBA players to prepare for a delay in the start of free agency, and it seems like the big problem there is they need to do an audit of how bad the pandemic actually hurt the finances this year. So so that they can start talking 
talking about the finance for next year and then of course obviously the health situation remains fluid so well, and and i yeah. mean the, it it appears that the normal course of business is that the cap is built off of what happened the previous year but it might end up either it's always sub can be subject to negotiation between the pa and the, and the owners and if that needs to be negotiated then it's going to be very hard to make a projection you know so if teams are working for draft picks or making deals using cap space or trade exceptions or figuring out where the luxury tax line is going to be for example if that is the subject of negotiation rather than a rigid calculation they're going to need time to figure out where the hell that's going yeah that's a, a good point too it does seem like having the pushing back the draft and free agency the draft right now is scheduled for what two days no sorry like three days i think after the nba finals is scheduled to end something like that something so, like that yeah um the last point i'll make on this too is people i think have declared the new lottery a success and i think it is to the extent that just teams tanking to go 19 and 63 instead of 20 and 62 there's not really much point to that anymore other than just simply lowering your downside you know being the number one seed means you can only go down as far as five for example but uh, it, it does seem to have curbed that some. But the problem, of course, is that some of the really bad teams have more of a chance of falling. So, for example, the Hawks one of the worst teams in the nba one of the five worst teams in the nba the last three years picked at five they're lucky to get trey young then they're eight the next year and then they're six this year they fell down two spots from the four seed the Cavs. Well, i will note they traded yeah. down to five they they had the third pick that year oh thank you yes i forgot about that yeah okay so that's a bad example um but yeah 20 and 2018 also was still the old format too well you could also use i mean the knicks falling to eight this year when they were one of the worst teams in the league no definitely um the other thing is the Cavs, for example you know two terrible seasons where they're the second worst team both years and they fell from two to five both years now and so they get didn't get a difference maker in all likelihood last year they're probably not going to again this year and it's just interesting i'm not saying that this system doesn't work i guess i probably like it a little better than before but we got to remember that the point of the draft is to help bad teams not be mired in the muck forever and the benefits the anti-tanking are seen immediately but the negatives aren't going to be seen for like a five or six year period when you've just got a team that's been drafting at six and not getting anyone good for a while well, and so that's just just worth considering as we go through this well and that's something that stefan no brought up uh before incidentally the team that he follows most closely the Chicago Bulls jumped up was the idea that the lottery reform made a bigger difference in the middle of the lottery because those teams like their their odds basically doubled and they didn't make it a guarantee that they were going to jump in but like I mean Chicago at seven I remember they had they had the seven pick the last couple of years but this was a different time to be at seven than than before and so they jumped at they jumped to four I think that could be a very positive thing for them even though this isn't the greatest draft class in the world and the other really kind of interesting challenge of this to me is that when you have what is widely considered to be a weak draft class there will always be tears and i don't know exactly where we're going to draw those lines or where general managers are i wonder how much moving up and moving down there's going to be because sometimes the challenge there is if is where there's ambiguity in value it gets hard teams get a little bit they get a little bit reluctant you know some teams somebody will bet on their board like danny Ainge did but like for example there have been a little bit of murmuring about like the knicks and the warriors talking Fig calibrating that deal is incredibly hard because it I mean, if one team values the top players in this draft differently than the other, it, with everybody not being that great, it could end up scuttling deals. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see what a $17 million trade exception and that number two pick 
or Andrew Wiggins in that number two pick could uh, potentially get well, the Oh, that's actually the one other thing I wanted to bring up. I actually think there is an argument that Minnesota getting the number one pick makes the pick that they sent to the Warriors in the future more valuable because assuming Minnesota keeps the pick, which is no guarantee, odds are that player is going to play and odds are that player is not going to be good. And I was thinking that exact same thing. So that means... You know, and we know with lottery reform that yeah. even if they're even if they're the worst team in the league, which I do not expect Minnesota to be if they're remotely healthy, there's not a great chance that they end up. I think that pick is top four protected. Top three. Top three. Top three. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, even if Minnesota, whatever, basically whatever they are, if they're the worst team in the league or they're you know in the lottery, then they only have you know maybe something in the mid 30s or even less range of keeping that pick. And so if they're if they're a couple of notches worse then that, you know, that does increase the odds that they keep it, but it also increases the potential pick quality that they send to the Warriors slash somebody else in another trade. Yeah, because basically no matter who they pick, especially if it's a high usage perimeter guy like Lamelo or Anthony Edwards, that player is going to be terrible next year. Also, uh, wither Jared Culver if uh, either of those two guys gets drafted. All right, anything else on the lottery or should we take a break and then get to the games for today? Nope, that's all I have. So Danny, despite bleary eyes with our fourth consecutive day of 10 hours worth of basketball we soldier on here we're going to talk about all four games today which game would you like to start with let's go with the first game of the day um the miami heat ostensibly the underdog because they are the five seed compared to indiana they they took care of business again and i talked about this a little bit with uh with seth part now we recorded real jam radio shortly before uh you and i started recording and the point that i brought up with this series and i think this will be kind of a, a through line for a lot of these is now that they're down 2-0 indiana has to win four or five games so they basically four and one is the worst they can do and still win this series and i can absolutely see the pacers winning a game or two but this game also served as a reminder to me that expecting them to go four and one barring some massive sea change in probably injury based i don't think that's happening yeah i mean being down 2-0 right now you have a much better chance of coming back from 2-0 in a normal series because three of the remaining five games that you have are at home so you're in better shape there if you get it to a game seven then yeah it shifts a little bit so i want to just see whether these teams are going to like have any spirit are they do they think that they're done you know usually you get that boost from the home crowd i just want to kind of get an understanding tomorrow of what the ecosystem is uh now we will actually be doing utah denver tomorrow for the nba cast uh, by the way that's at four eastern one pacific uh, so please join us for that that's a one one series we wanted to get a look at that we already did one for clippers dallas we're going to do game four of clippers dallas on sunday and then we're going to do portland lakers on saturday at 8 30 eastern 5 30 pacific so we are ramping back up again with the traditional nba cast you can get that on youtube periscope or twitch i am nate duncan nba on all of those that's where we broadcast from you can mute your tv sync up uh, with us thanks to our good sponsor bookies.com on that one so this series much like okc houston just seems like it's going so according to form which is a not very good passing team that's kind of station to station on offense going against the switching defense and just not really being able to get it done offensively 101 offense rating for the pacers in this one and it wasn't like you know terrible three-point shooting 35 percent you know like that didn't kill them they actually they got up a few more threes 34 in this game they did have a bunch of turnovers but they just don't really have anything and so here's some stats on that synergy track play types uh, for games so i went and looked at that 
and Indiana was listed as having 30 isolations in this game out of about 100 possessions and then an additional 17 listed as pick and roll but remember they're switching everything pretty much except in a very few matchups and so most of those pick and rolls are also ending up really being isolations um and I think also worth noting that a lot of those pick and rolls turn into isos that's sort of like a borderline of like is synergy going to code it as a pick and roll when they switch and you try and attack the switch I think the longer you wait to attack after the switch the more likely they are to code it as an iso uh, and they just did a lot of that they weren't that good at it and they can't score you know Oladipo had 22 points and 8 of 8 from the foul line but he was 5 of 14 he 11 of his 14 shots or threes and he had six turnovers I, I thought he, st- he had some moments where he looked better in his 37 minutes but and he did more defensively as well getting two steals but it's still you know he's not a guy that you want going one-on-one at, at where he's at right now to me and then Brogdon he struggled again he was 6 18 in game one 4 of 14 in this game he did get fouled a little bit but it was basically only Brogdon Oladipo who got to the line and he had nine assists which is decent Pacers actually had some more assists in this game which was nice up to 25 on 36 field goals and but that also shows you that when they did go to the isolation it was very ineffective it really they really were dependent on actually like driving and kicking or or getting some movement so I just don't and then Warren was like okay but he couldn't hit a three 14 points on 15 shots it was it just it doesn't really seem like things are about to change in this series at all it doesn't and like you brought up with uh Oladipo I thought that Miles Turner had a few moments offensively and defensively but not enough to say oh that that can be their calling card later on yeah he, he was probably played the best of any pacer with 17 points and five blocks i would i would say so but then like you had that beginning stretch with duncan robinson right oh my god i mean he i think he had three or four just really early baskets when it looked like the game was getting out of hand early and to the pacers credit they fought back but yeah there there isn't any sort of like wrinkle or any sort of magic trick that nate mcmillan can pull out at this juncture you know like there's there's only so much that that he can do and they're the team as as we kind of talked about before the series the pacers especially with the limitations they have due to injury with Sabonis being out, Jeremy Lamb being out, and Oladipo not being Oladipo, that they can do. And so I think that what was a through line of this game and Thunder Rockets is that I thought in both cases, the team that we had as the underdog in the series got run in game one. In game two, they played better and they still lost. And I don't even know if Indiana played better, frankly. I, I think they were. did. I, I don't. I mean, I think they, they seemed the same to me. To they be seemed a little bit better to me, and um, and then and but, I mean, and all, well, I guess Oladipo just only played nine minutes in Game One. I mean, yeah. but I don't know how much he helped them. I think he did compared to some of the guys they have on their on their bench. Though we should know Jakar Sampson, another efficient game, other than his four fouls, four six from the field, six rebounds as well in seventeen minutes. I still think Justin Holiday should start over his brother. I think it's it's a little bit yeah, it's a little bit weird to me that well, they're still going that direction. Yeah. And, and I mean, and it got killed right in the beginning, right? They're down 13 to six. You know, that's almost basically your winning margin in the game right at the beginning. And a big part of that was Holiday, who, you know, he's not getting the ball at all with these starters. So he's not helping you really offensively. I don't know that he's any better of a spot up shooter than Justin Holiday. And then they switched the matchups to put Brogdon on Dragic because Holiday kind of got cooked by Dragic in the first game, although Dragic also cooked Brogdon in the third quarter of this one. But so credit Eric Spolster. I don't know if they knew that they were changing those matchups. And forgive me, I don't think they went to that at all in game one. Maybe they did a little bit, but they went to just like two quick post-ups 
of Aaron Holiday with Jay Crowder. And Aaron Holiday is a very undersized point guard. He's not used to having to fight. And so Jay Crowder was a college power forward. And he just puts him in the goal for a couple of buckets real quick early on. And then your other problem is that Jay Crowder is usually the guy you're going to be helping off of. And Aaron Holiday isn't big enough to really do much as a help defender. And so on the first Duncan Robinson three, you've got Victor Oladipo coming off of him one pass away at the nail and just giving Duncan Robinson a wide open three on a Butler pick and roll where Butler, you know, is he really that threatening? Like right at the foul line. Ideally, you'd want to bring help if it is required from the low man off a of Crowder, but that's Aaron Holiday. And so I really just don't get it. And I think you mentioned there wasn't anything that they could really do that differently strategically. Offensively, I, I agree with you. There's not really, like you just can't build the kind of DNA that they need this quickly. Again, you know, they could try to space the floor a little bit better for isolations, do more small, small pick and rolls, get the matchup that they want. Although, I mean, they've already got Duncan Robinson on their best driver, Brogdon. So that's, and Brogdon is taking advantage of that matchup some, but not enough to really drive them to efficient offense all on his own. You know, Brogdon is really kind of more of an opportunity driver playing off of others than necessarily the guy who's doing it all. But if you go with Holiday, then I think you could switch. And then I think you could take away Duncan Robinson because Duncan Robinson has been, frankly, the difference in these two games. He's seven of eight from three today in 25 minutes. He's plus nine. They won by nine. They basically got the lead, which they relinquished briefly between the first and second quarter. But other than that, their Pacers are down the whole game. And so maybe if you switch everything, you know, I think between Oladipo, Brogdon, Holiday, and Warren, is there anyone who's like going to get completely overwhelmed by these Miami perimeter players where they're basically playing like Butler at the four? Uh, so if you switch one through four, maybe, you, and, and even late in the clock, you could probably have Miles Turner switch. It. Like, I would. Nobody. Now, I don't know if you want Miles Turner switching out onto Duncan Robinson early in the possession necessarily, but maybe you have him in position where you know you kind of got to communicate it a little bit of okay if he gets open we'll switch it and then they'll make him throw it to bam in the post where he can be good but that hasn't been an emphasis uh, in these first two games so but the Pacers again you know that you talk about the DNA that does take some communication Nate McMillan has always been a guard your guy get through your screen they've had good results with that but they can't just be solid defensively and the three-point shooting for Miami they're 18 of 35 that's basically all Duncan Robinson seven of eight nobody else was like so awesome in this game from three other than him in an outlier way so you got to take him away and and, I mean it's pretty hilarious that he only played 25 minutes still and didn't come back in at the end because I think they wanted more of a defensive group out there with the lead but I'm just like my thought is just your offense isn't going to get better so you better find a way to make your defense even better right and I I would love to see Indiana do a better job in the possession game because you think about that they're probably not going to have the advantage from three either in frequency or percentage so then it's kind of getting to the line more or just getting more shots and so in this game Miami more offensive rebounds they were equal in turnovers 16 all and it's true that a few more of Miami's turnovers were live ball, but really we didn't see that manifest itself anyway. So yeah, I th- for Indiana, it's, it's just tough. I, th- I think that it's settled in kind of where where we thought it would. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a sweep, but that I, th- I, it, I think it means that Indiana, it's going to take a lot for Indiana to win the series. I got a couple of small notes here. Oladipo, just some of the bad shots that he's taking. Ugh. He hits one three and then he gets the switch onto Hero and decides to go for like the 26 foot step back from the left wing like you don't get if you're gonna get the switch onto someone that's because 
you think you can get a good shot against that player and if you cannot then pass the ball or and he didn't even try to drive on him so that he, he had flashes of looking better on some of these drives but still i mean four assists six turnovers he just is really trying to do too much at this point now in his defense there's nobody else who's really able to do much either but throwing away possessions with some of these threes is not a great and i mean the the ratio of 11 threes to three twos for a guy now he did get to the line for eight attempts so that's that kind of obvious that a little bit but that's still like not what you want like he, victor oladipo is shooting is like a supplemental thing that's supposed to be setting up his driving not the main thing uh I thought Andre Iguodala had a really nice defensive game. He was yeah. really good digging down off of his man, and he always does it without getting taken advantage of. That was pretty solid. Uh, you know, maybe the Pacers could do a little bit more to get TJ Warren going than they have. That's all about all, all I got on this one, though. Should we move on? Yeah, I think we move on to the game that I see the thematic tie and also the next game that happened in the day, and that's Rockets Thunder. I thought that the Thunder overall played a little bit better. And Yeah, c- compared to Indiana, they did a better job of evolving in this game against the switching defense. Yeah, I mean, they had their, their better isolation players spend a little bit more time there, but the problem is playing a little bit better. Even in, the, I thought the first half was more of a, a difference. Also, Houston's defense tightened up. It just wasn't, wasn't nearly enough yeah so to give them some credit there was more slipping there was more attacking in transition particularly in that first half there was more going quickly when you get the isolation there was more targeting of james harden particularly in transition like shooter got by him a couple times there they actually remember that shea gilgis alexander was on their team that was a big uh, accomplishment and yeah. he was awesome 31 in points this game. 9 of 17 from the field 10 of 11 from the line yeah I, I thought i thought he looked good um but something seth brought up when we talked earlier was how little and hollinger brought this up too how little okc does in terms of any sort of activity off ball and so that allows houston to settle in and they're not having to do a lot on these defensive possessions even if they get blown by every once in a while it's not like they're working too hard yeah like gallo is actually the one guy i think who's been pretty good like slipping some picks so they've had like a couple plays where he'll like fake the screen on some split cuts and go back door and get fouled so they have like a few things there but still i mentioned that same stat of the pick and rolls plus isos the pick and rolls generally just being off the switch anyway they had somewhat fewer in this game than they did but it was still 47 of their plays out of 101 possessions logged by synergy were pick roll ball hander plus isolation so you know essentially no possibility of an assist on those plays and then they also you mentioned the lack of cutting and part of this i think is steven adams just being really slow right now on on both ends defensively he can't cover anything and then offensively he can't like slip through quickly and get on top of the rim and you know beat the guy who's trying to switch onto him with inside position so they only had one play to the pick and roll uh roll man all game and so that was a problem and then adams also you know he had he was four for four but all that came in maybe the first 13 14 minutes of the game and he got his hands on probably like 10 offensive rebounds but it seemed like there would always be like four houston guys around and they would just keep tipping it tip it away from him and adams he, he only ended up with three offensive rebounds they only had eight until they got out offensive rebounded by houston which is not supposed to happen when they don't start anyone taller than six seven and you start a big seven footer in adams so um well and i, I talked yeah. about the challenge of the numbers game in the last series it's in some ways even more pronounced here houston put up 56 three-pointers 
And yeah, they they made 19 of them. That's not an amazing percentage, about 34%. But they still made eight more than Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma City attempted basically the same number of free throws. So then that puts a lot on two-point success, puts a lot on theoretically transition. And it's there just aren't too many ways to solve that. And it's not like Houston was shooting unreasonably well. Eric Gordon missed all 10 of his. Harden was two of 11 from three. They did get some, some effective performances from Tucker and Dave. House, Austin Rivers had a couple big threes, and Greens continued to be effective. But this wasn't a, a ridiculous Houston performance to me offensively in any way, and they still were like miles ahead of the Thunder. Yeah, this was a, this offensive performance from Houston, you know, a big. Uh, was really a testament to two things they didn't get to the foul line a ton you mentioned the 56 threes they were 10 of 35 from three at halftime and at one point missed 15 straight towards the end of the second quarter yeah uh they ended up going nine of 21 in the second half but even when you only shoot 34 percent from three that's actually if you know if that's a half court possession that's pretty good right that's over a point per possession in the half court a lot of times but the thing that really was a huge help for them even in that first half when they were shooting pretty miserably was they had zero turnovers in the first half and only seven for the game Harden had zero turnovers at all and so uh, this OKC defense just is not forcing enough they tur- they actually do a great job of not turning it over but Houston forced a lot of turnovers so 13 turnovers was a pretty decent amount also worth noting that this was a very very slow game this yeah. is like back to like a you know a pace from 10 years ago and 92 possessions so that's you know well, usually it, your average game is 100 these days you, you know a factor in that if you use uh, cleaning the glasses stats both teams had transition frequencies under 10 <laughs> And both teams played yeah. in the half court. Um, Houston, they Queen the Glass had a 86% of their possessions in the half court. OKC, 91.1 in the half court. Yeah, and I did think that OKC did a little bit better a job of just like kind of getting like semi-transition that might have not have been logged that way. But yeah, they, they still have to do better than that and to beat this Houston team because Houston, they're a really good help team when they can load up and you're going really slow and you're going station to station and they can know who to help off of. If you're pushing the ball in transition, then their help defenders, once you have a head of steam and they're not all loaded up on one side of the floor against you, it, it doesn't look as good against Houston. And then once Russell Westbrook comes back, I'm sure Houston will start playing faster. Houston also had 31 isolations in this game which is a, a huge number obviously Harden was a big part of that uh Lou Dort I thought did a really nice job on Harden but as was pointed out in the broadcast Lou Dort is a one-way player he missed his first five threes and nobody was even in the same zip code with him on maybe four of them and finally he hit two out of his last three but when you miss your first five then they're not guarding you on any of the other possessions when you're not taking the three either and so Houston as we know does one of the best jobs in the league of just not guarding the right guys um Harden has like become somehow even more of a caricature of himself he it seems like he only has like one move at this point which is start going between his legs a million times in a row and then either go to his left or step back to the right for the three and yet it still works especially his driving when they put anyone other than Dort on him uh like Dennis Schroeder Harden will just get the first step just enough so that Schroeder can't get in front of him to draw the charge and then he'll just continue plowing through him with his shoulder all the way from the three-point line to the basket and, and score on him so they tried to go with the energizer bunny unit at the end i don't know why they are terrified of putting Che gilgis alexander on harden at all maybe it would be terrible but it can't be worse 
than Schroeder, who Correct. just doesn't have anywhere close to the size required. I think it's time for a bolder tact and to just start Darius Baisley and at center and just say we're not we're not going to we're not going to stop you guys. Let's see if that four spacing can can get their defense a little bit and just you know go to a go to a David strategy. Uh, the other moment in this game that struck me was Chris Paul getting PJ Tucker's fourth foul by basically stepping on PJ Tucker's face. And I mean those two guys. Yeah, have- Tucker was like on the ground having gone for a loose ball. Paul is standing next to him and he's like, oh I know, I'm just going to dribble up court by like stepping over you and tripping over you and they gave him the foul which uh, i mean it uh, just wanted to describe that play for people but uh i didn't enjoy it no no you shouldn't enjoy it because it was terrible and it's not basketball yeah i mean chris paul the fact that he endorses an insurance company just makes like perfect fucking sense doesn't it even though it does kind of feel like the fouls he draws are insurance fraud but yeah yeah well uh, but it's just like you know some finding some technicality to deny coverage of course when he was on the rockets it was even better because like that is adds in the sort of like math like actuarial gaming the numbers component of just like yeah you know we might have to pay out this one big claim and it looks ugly but you know we're gonna collect from on all these other people who are never gonna pay uh have to get claims and we'll end up profiting in the end right like that's like sort of the philosophy so but uh yeah i mean paul was i don't know that he earned this entirely but he was negative 36 in this game and they got cooked both of the times when he was leading the second unit versus a team that didn't have harden out there so uh they did uh, adjust I, i think one of the differences to me between like nate mcmillian and billy donovan is that you could see more of the adjustments that donovan made now you know i mean i'm not i didn't watch every single play diagram every single play i'm not saying mcmillan didn't make any adjustments but for example terrence ferguson and diallo basically didn't play and they brought in nader and and obviously dort was available but they brought in nader off the bench and you know nader didn't really do anything he had like a rebound stolen out of his hands for a layup which looked ugly but he at least you know will take a shot needs to get guarded a little bit i hope they stick with that um you know and again they just started to have a little bit more facility again this feels kind of you know jazz against the rocket sea if okc were going home i might pick them to win one or even both games but of course that's not what they're doing you know they're slowly getting better but you know not at a quick enough pace and Let's see here. I, I got a few more notes. Any, any other like big things that stuck out for you? Well, I, I'm wondering, I, I brought up the idea of Baisley potentially playing a larger role even at center in this. How do you feel about using, so like, I mean, Nerlens isn't a perfect fit for this series either, especially because he doesn't bring any real force spacing. We always wondered if the jump shot was going to get there. I, I think they should give him some more of a shot because I think that his speed, number one, like he can get some blocks or steals and maybe get you out and transition a little bit. Number two, you know, Houston doesn't run the most intricate stuff to where like he's gonna get fooled by what they're doing um you know he's gotta be a little more locked in on personnel than maybe he normally would be but you can put him on pj tucker and he at least has a prayer of like helping and then getting out to the corner and like bothering that shot still with his mobility whereas steven adams is just like calcified in terms of his mobility compared with he was like where he was like four years ago yeah that's an that's an interesting point and but but i like the idea of basely too i i had that in, in my notes as well that maybe they should at least try that i don't know if that's gonna be a panacea i probably wouldn't start that way but uh, i or maybe you would maybe you would start that way because actually one thing that that might help is because he shot the ball pretty well in the ball he also like could actually drive a closeout you know he's he's looked very confident with the ball if you start him now you can keep dort on the floor 
let Baisley space out. You yes. can maybe even use Dort as like a very tiny roll man because he's such a good driver. Kind of like we thought yeah. MKG would be on the on the Mavericks. Yeah, and I think Dort could be even better at that. He can get to the basket and finish against these smaller Houston players because Adams is too slow for like some of the quick slips that you need to do, but Dort you know, might be able to do that in some of these plays. So I would I, I don't know if I'd start that group, but I think that could be an interesting one. Uh, maybe bring Baisley in early because Dort obviously was killing their offense and it, it, he did do a decent job on Harden, but he also and uh he, but you know he can't make a shot which is a, a problem when you have him and adams out there the rockets are just gonna be able to load up too much on some of these guys that's all i have i don't know if you have more okay i got a few more small notes uh jeff van gundy made this point which i think is a really good one that you don't want to attack a switching defense from the three-point line on the side because then they can overload it and the help principles make more sense you want to do that from the top if you're going to attack i think that's where shea had more success uh the rockets overall just their drive and kick game particularly to do that with some of these guys that you, you have really evolved in that area like austin rivers Daniel and Daniel house. house yeah he had some passes and not turn the ball over you know like those a bunch of driving kicks like that you can turn the ball over they uh, have uh, avoided that a lot uh and eric gordon's driving kick game is awesome even though he was 0 for 10 from three he was seven of 10 sorry six out of 10 on twos and had some really nice drives again he didn't get that many assists but he was definitely like starting the blunder um i will say they did I, well, switch wait, up wait, 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 oh yeah sorry thing. go ahead i am really enjoying robert cummings and pj tucker being the fourth and fifth best players on on an offense like it, it just it is such a natural fit to kind of see all that work yeah and now they actually did switch up the matchups a little bit okc at one point where they had stephen adams guarding robert covington and they put chris paul on tucker maybe thinking that covington you know wouldn't be as good of a shooter as pj tucker uh you know maybe that means and they also were just hurting him again with that putting that guy in the corner and then forcing the center to make a decision between helping off the strong side corner or just letting harden go straight to the run that still has been very difficult to deal with uh generally it, i think actually robert covington might be a better defender at the rim and as a help guy overall that clint capella who's like seven feet tall uh the guy that, that he replaced um covington i thought was really good defensively and then the last thing i'll say is the flagrant foul criteria one of the criteria is whether an altercation occurred so i would be coaching my guys anytime someone knocks you down going to the basket on something questionable just like get up and like kind of get in his face just a little bit like not enough to get a technical but enough so that like attention is drawn to it and the referees at least decide to review instead you know chris Paul like pretty dangerously knocked down daniel house but then everyone was like buddy buddy afterwards and if there's an altercation that actually is like technically part of the criteria and they're always going to look at it again as long as you don't go and slug the guy or something all right, let's take a quick break and we'll move on to the last two series as the one seeds get right. Let's go with Portland and the Lakers here. Seth wrote a piece. He's been a frequent mentioning here, I, I guess, since you talked to him recently. But he wrote a piece about basically Lakers and Bucks just need to play better and play harder. And that was really the recipe more than anything particularly strategic that happened in this Portland Lakers game. Yeah, I mean, the Lakers left a lot of points on the board in game one. They, their support players in particular missed a ton of threes. 14 of 38 in this one. That's totally livable for them, especially when the Lakers had the advantage on the offensive glass and in the turnover margin and hopefully Damian Lillard's dislocated finger thankfully no fracture that doesn't end up being a, bi a big factor in game three remember there's a big difference between playing and being right and I think we could see an example of yeah. that potentially it, it is his left hand uh probably what they're gonna just have to do is tape it up to the the one next to it and hope that I mean that's not it's not ideal if you're trying to finish at the rim when you can't like actually spread your fingers out to like get the feel of the ball but hopefully other than left hand finishes it shouldn't bother him too much I mean those, those always are uh, look pretty ugly though 
I thought that Anthony Davis looked a lot better, not just the, oh, the statistical profile is better, but he looked more fluid as an athlete. There were more times where he went down the floor, reacted a little bit better defensively, and it made a world of difference for the Lakers, who were looking basically so desperately for contributions from anyone in Game 1, and they got more of those in different ways in Game 2. Yeah, Davis in particular, nine of his first 11 points to get him going were really plays that he kind of made himself just with his effort, either in transition, on the offensive glass, etc. And then he was able to get more going at guys like Nurkic and Whiteside, uh, finished up with 31 points in 29 minutes, 13 of 21 from the field. And LeBron still, you know, his shot's not great. He was 0-3 from three, but they got him in the post a lot more. He only had to play 27 minutes in this one. Did have six turnovers, and like Gary Trent actually picked him in the backcourt. I think that Gary Trent does a good job, but LeBron definitely realized what his advantage was. Frank Vogel credit him for calling more of those plays as well, like kind of making LeBron do that. Uh, And LeBron called his own number there a a few times as well. Uh, But really, I think, you know, this wasn't like some totally dominating offensive performance from the lakers like yes they they got on the offensive glass they used their size they got out and transition way more which i think was huge or even semi-transition just to like push the ball enough even at the start of possessions even though they're only technically credited with seven fast break points they just were moving faster they were cutting harder they had more space out on the floor i think they just like generally were standing in better places uh I, i'm sure they looked at film on how they were going to try and attack that white side nurkic lineup which wasn't nearly as effective and but this wasn't still a dominating offensive performance from the Lakers by any means it was really more of a a great defensive outing and that Portland shooting that had been so awesome in the first game cratered to 28 percent eight of 29 not a lot of threes Lillard only played 30 minutes obviously after until that hand injury came in but he and McCollum combined for two out of 12 from three well Lillard led him with 18 points and this was the and Lillard just didn't have seem to have the same juice but when you're not hitting your shots like you normally are it's hard sometimes it's just well they don't have to guard you quite as hard i think the lakers did had a few nice adjustments on him as well and danny green in particular played did a better job kcp did a a better job they actually like hounded him they picked up both teams were actually picking up full court which was interesting uh but yeah it was just that there's not a ton of analysis on this one this was like your typical yo-yo principle game in game two by the favorite one other thing one added you brought in the the struggles for the blazers from three if you add in two pointers they were 14 of 47 that's below 30 percent on jump shots on two point uh, two point jump shots plus three point jump shots and you know that that is disproportionately low that was as you said the pendulum swinging the other way but yeah i mean the what i think game one was a reminder of and this is also true in milwaukee orlando is yes good teams can lose to inferior competition but it kind of the the worst team needs to step up and the top team needs to kind of slip down a little bit if those things happen absolutely the lakers can lose games in the series but it's going to probably require both of those and neither happened in this one so the lakers won going away yeah a few other small notes here ad guarding wenyan gabriel was a real force defensively early on that became a a problem gabriel was negative 26 and 27 minutes as were pretty much all the portland stars were right around oh uh, mellow was negative 26 in 27 minutes i think were you were saying oh yeah sorry sorry uh gabriel was uh yeah i i mentioned that like my eyes are starting to go a little blurry (laughs) i was just reading like the line above it on the uh on the box tour yeah mellow it's interesting i think they they realized that he can't get through a screen on lebron so they they ran like a nice backdoor cut for him 
uh, involving Whiteside, who also wasn't going to help out on the backstream. LeBron got an alley-oop off of that. That looked good. Uh, Portland's defense just wasn't the same as well. Like JaVale McGee just got two dunks just by like cutting through the lane when like the ball was being held up top, like no screen or anything. He just like cut in front of his man for a dunk. Uh, Markeith Morris still don't quite get it there uh, he's played 19 minutes and missed all four of his threes all of which they were quite happy to give him they changed up a little bit and went uh, part of this might have been how howard getting his third foul which you know dwight howard is going to play 15 minutes in a competitive game so like why take him out with his third foul if he's playing well but uh they went to ad at center without lebron to try to juice the offense a little bit that seemed to help they did pretty well in, in those minutes J.R. Smith got some tick just because they were trying to get someone who was going to get respected. And uh, J.R. did get up the second most shots on the Lakers, although some of that was garbage time. He was well, three of and, nine and, from And three. I think Vogel was terrified of playing Deion Waiters when Lillard is on the floor in its competitive minutes. And I kind of get that. But also, like, I, I mean, it's not like Waiters is... J.R. Smith is just as flighty and off and, is, and abysmal to me as, as Deion Waiters is in a lot of circumstances. Gary Trent, I mean, that guy just really continues to impress me. I thought he competed as well as possible against LeBron. And like every time he shoots a three, it seems like it's it's going in at this point or just like very narrowly missing. Uh, he was really good. But I think hopefully the Blazers didn't play too many minutes in this game. They can get some rest. And I think, you know, these next two games, obviously, are going to determine whether we have a, a series or not. You know, I think like in these series where the road team, who's the underdog, wins game one, Game three really determines whether you have a series, right? Are the Lakers going to just restore order and go up 2-1? Or are, is Portland going to at least make it really difficult on them or even win that? And then, you know, we're, that we're going uh, for quite the distance here. You know, talk Milwaukee, Orlando? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the broad takeaway for me was the pendulum swinging back the other way. And Orlando hit an unreasonable amount of jump shots in game one. And they missed an unreasonable amount of gum sh- jump shots in game game two i mean so other than 12 of 27 from mid-range just brutal in the paint a combined 12 of 29 in the paint also orlando shot 21 percent from three seven of 33 and so i mean we have an offensive rating below below 100 against almost anybody it's going to be hard to survive and against the best team in the regular season in the nba it's uh, it's not survivable yeah in some ways this was an underwhelming win for the Bucs. I mean, they forced Orlando to miss 19 of 20 shots at one point. They were up double digits almost the whole way. Orlando got back like within nine with like five minutes to go at one point. Vooch was also awesome again, although he just didn't have the same effect for his teammates. Part of that was, you know, he shot six and nine for mid-range and I thought he just really missed some opportunities to just space out to three on some of those plays where he's just shooting like a 20-footer instead. Uh, for the Bucks, still a little clunky offensively. You know, only a 108 offensive rating in this game. And it wasn't due to terrible three-point shooting. A lot of it was turnovers, 20 turnovers in this game. And that's another big thing that kept Orlando in it. Uh, they only had 11 uh, for a Steve Clifford team. And, you know, for 7-33 three-point shooting, big surprise. Gary Clark, James Ennis didn't really do much. And, yeah, they didn't have any player who made more than two threes. The best shooter really was Fournier at two out of seven, which was pretty rough. And Vooch 
yeah, he had 32 points, 13 to 23. He did a lot of his damage just one-on-one against Robin Lopez in the post. Robin Lopez is just not a good post defender. That's We've said that many times. That's been the case going back to when Dwight Howard cooked him in that 2014 series against Houston when Lopez was on Portland. But I thought Brooke Lopez did a much better job on him in part because... And I think they also kind of came to the conclusion that, you know what, we're going to like let Vucevic, we're going to deal with him. And if he wants to pop out to three and he wants to have 32 points, that's fine. We'll just hold everyone else down. We're still going to protect the rim a ton. They did a great job of that. Forced them to shoot a ton of jumpers, including in mid-range. They thought they wouldn't shoot as well. They were right. But to the extent that they didn't really change anything up too much strategically that I saw in Vucevic, except I actually saw that Brook Lopez seemed to be protecting the paint more than he was in game one. And you might think, well, if he's closer to the paint like how does that help him on the pick and pop i actually think that if he starts off in the paint it's easier because you only have one direction that you can go so you could be prepared okay as soon as the ball goes to him i'm sprinting this way towards him Whereas if he's sort of trying to stay close to Vooch a little bit, but then also kind of trying to help, you like can get going either direction and you just get caught in no man's land doing neither. Whereas if you start in the paint, you're deterring anything there and then you can get a hard closeout. And I thought he did a much better job of that. His brother less so, but I thought Lopez had a, a very nice defensive game. Yeah. Despite the fact that Vooch did okay, he did a lot of that damage on Robin Lopez and Brooke protected the room extremely well in this one. Yeah, and I thought that it's a good call in terms of having a single way to, to read and to move. I think that did make a difference. Another underwhelming offensive game for Chris Middleton. Two points, one of eight from the field in 31 minutes and no free throw attempts. Like It's not like, oh, he was getting to the line a ton, so he wasn't taking the many yeah. shots from the field. And uh, another another guy with a ton of turnovers. So he had four turnovers. He's usually a low turnover guy, right? And so um, when I talked with Seth, the thing he said is the most important priority for the Bucks going into the next round, assuming they make it, is to get Chris Milton right because their margin for error, assuming it's against Miami, is going to be a lot thinner. And so they're going to need players to come on early. And Middleton will have some tough matchups in that series should it come to pass. But he's going to need to play well. The one thing that I thought was encouraging for the Bucks was that Eric Bledsoe looked like himself again defensively. He really came out very good getting over screens on Markel Fultz as they surged out to that big lead early. He also forced a couple of turnovers on Vucevic early. He was just doing it back to like really his active self. I thought that was good. He he got at least enough going six out of 12. Still hasn't hit a three, but at least was active. He led the Bucks in assists. Giannis, another game where he was below 50% from the field. He was 12 out of 25 in game one. He had 28 points in 32 minutes they also were able to keep the minutes down in this game with uh, that big lead they might have blown him out a lot more I mean I still would like to see if Giannis Antetokounmpo can play 40 minutes without fouling out and actually still the same level of intensity but that wasn't required in this one also that 10 out of 23 he missed a bunch of just easy bunnies at the rim or just like taps on the offensive glass that yeah. you know aren't really just it shouldn't really the, go on his ledger though that, though that did give him a couple offensive rebounds which were part of his 20 in the game yeah yeah 20 rebounds and 32 minutes his permanent rebounding rate next to, to brooke lopez who had three rebounds in this game and Giannis is definitely the guy who goes and inhaled those and and the magic are not a, a big offensive rebounding team either and i think the plays where they use Giannis as the role man continue to look really good uh, that's uh, been one of their better sources uh, of offense 
So, yeah, we'll see what's going on. I mean, only eight shots for Middleton just kind of isn't really enough. Brook Lopez also broke out in a big way, actually hit some shots in this game. That was big uh, to stretch the floor out for Giannis, and he had 20 points on, on four of eight and was a close to a team best plus 12. The other guy who was higher than that was Pat Connaughton, who hit five of eight threes. Those are all of his shots, and uh, he actually played a little bit down the end. In crunch time. 24 minutes for Connaughton, only 11 for DiVincenzo. They also played Kyle Korver more. Korver actually made a two-pointer in this game but you know, just to get a little bit more shooting on the floor after that first game but uh, i mean the defense was back 93 offensive rating for the magic but they still got to get better offensively and uh, kudos to the magic for the way that they have defended them so far in the series yeah i think orlando has looked better so far than anticipated and that doesn't necessarily translate into it being a longer series than five games but still i think clifford's done a nice job tactically and i think their players have worked hard all right that will do it for today's show again if you haven't subscribed yet give it a shot we are of course if you are not in position to do the year-long pricing we are going to start offering monthly when the full launch go as when we go to a subscription for four days a week starting on september 8th so that will be available then and also if you are in uh, some difficult circumstances and that monthly price is more than is in your budget right now uh, send us an email there's a, a explanation on how to do that in that letter that is pinned to my twitter profile at nate duncan mba and you'll uh, we may not get back to you right away on that but uh you'll get a response by the time we start on september 8th that's when that uh special pricing is going to become uh, available but if you uh, are planning on being a dunk listener for a long time your best bet of course is to grandfather yourself in with this really good pricing there are cheapest pricing we're ever going to offer for the year membership and then you get that forever going forward you also get a chance to bundle with the athletic if you are a new athletic subscriber you can get a great deal bundling with us in the athletic you get 34 percent off the normal price combined of us and the athletic so that's just a just one of the best deals I've ever seen for the athletic and of course uh, for our content uh, as well so that's something that you can consider and I also wrote uh, an FAQ as well that's linked in that letter at the top in case there are more kind of technical questions about how it's going to work that you have so uh thanks again to everyone who has subscribed really enjoying bringing that to you you're getting the cap sheets already you're getting the daily dunks already by email and uh we'll talk to y'all sunday night probably i I think will be it our next episode till then reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing Uh, (laughs) that's definitely not a problem Uh, reese's you did it you stumped this charming devil 